Good morning, First Baptist. Good morning, First Baptist. My name is Chad Gilbert. I have the great joy of serving as pastor here at First Baptist. If you're a guest today, thank you for being here and being part of what God's doing. Mark, come up here and join me. So one of the things that I love to do is to share some of the things that just absolutely excited me and thrilled me this week. Just in the normal life of you, the church, being the church, just living on mission. Um, know this, that part of our philosophy for doing ministry is this. We're going to gather, so Sundays are a unique gathering time. We gather to be under the Word. We gather to worship. We gather to be in groups. Uh, we gather so that we have an intergenerational investment of discipleship in our children and youth on Sunday evenings. But then the rest of the week, we scatter. And, and, and we're not just scatter, like scatter brain, like chaotic, and we're just like, man, I just can't wait to get back on Sunday. We scatter together in an intentional way to go into New Orleans and all nations to make disciples of all nations. And one of the most meaningful ways that we can do that is when we link arms with one another. It's what, what we call here at First Baptist local disciple making. Local disciple making. That's where brothers and sisters link arms together and then go do specific ministries together in our city. And one of those ministries is called Rivard. And so I've asked Mark to share just a little bit, like give you a, a preview of what God is doing in our city um, through this ministry. So share a little bit about this week uh, to encourage the saints. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Chad, for allowing me to come and share with my brothers and sisters this wonderful work that's going on right here in our city. So um, how many of you in the room have a child between ages 11 and 17? Okay. All right. How easy is it to parent them? Right. Okay. Yeah. We're all there. Good. Um, so let me just give you a brief snippet of what Rivard is doing. Okay. Does anyone know what Rivard is? Rivard Juvenile Detention Home right? Which is really a center because you can't call it a home because it's not where they live or it's not where necessarily they have a mother and father that nurtures their life, right? But it's a place where 11 to 17-year-olds who've committed crimes end up staying until they hear from the judge what their sentence is. So this week, and we go every week on Wednesday night, so if you're looking for something to do on a Wednesday night, I recommend highly that in these moments where the Lord is like offering places for us to go serve, that you diligently seek the Lord because the Lord wants to use you in ministry, not just to accept what he's done, but then to go tell others about who he is and why it's so important for them to know who he is. So me and some of my brothers and sisters go every week and we minister to these young people. Now, mind you, um, maybe my kid, right, she likes to wear sweats and a sweatshirt and just kind of hang out in the house, right? These kids are in orange jumpsuits with numbers on their back, you know? So when you think about an 11-year-old committing some type of crime, what is going on in their household or what isn't going on in their household that they feel that this is how they gain acceptance? right? This is how they may feel love in their life, is to be with a real ruckus group of people that say, this is how it is. That's not how it is. It might be how it is in their moment, but it's not how it is, right? The Lord has created them for more. 
And so what we do is we bring the gospel to them. We open the scriptures. We tell them who they are, how they're made in the image of God. And really this week, we just had this amazing opportunity, again, open to us by Jefferson Parish to go in because they could close that door at any time, right? We know that. Policy changes, doors close. So we're thankful that we get to go. But we saw salvation this week, y'all. Amen. Like God was before us, and Amen. he just knew that these boys needed him. And they surrendered to that. They realized in that moment that they were created by God, and that they were sinners, and that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, and that when he died and he rose again, that means that there is a way out of where they are, but a way in to heaven, a way into a better life, as long as they choose that, right? Now, where the, the, here's the challenging part, right? Is that they go from there possibly to a prison because their crime is so heinous, right, at their age, and they don't know what they're doing. Remember, at least this is what I've been told, 25 to 30 is when the mind matures, right? That's like full maturity. They're 11, 12, 16, right? So how are they making these decisions? By pressure, right? Pressure to do something that they shouldn't do. So really, at this point, it's how do we, where do we go from here? They end up in foster care sometimes, right? They also end up in group homes, which can be challenging. Um, and many of them have juvenile life sentences, sentences, so they have to stay in Rivard. So we have this prolonged discipleship relationship. So here's two ways specifically that I need from my church family to pray. One, on Wednesdays, if you can just put it on your calendar that we're going into a place the devil has reign and hold over, right? Really, because these boys have, and girls, there's some girls, um, but these boys and girls have, you know, scales over their eyes. They're lost. So those need to be lifted. So please pray on Wednesdays for those scales to be lifted so that they can see God, right? And then the second way to pray is every other day of the week, that they find this peace of God because their life is in turmoil, so they want to create turmoil even while they're in Rivard. So oftentimes we'll go in and they'll be completely locked down. Like one pod, they live in pods of like seven and eight. And so those pods might be locked down and there might be only one or two students, which we call students, right? Because they're kids. Um, these children will be sitting there waiting on us. So we sometimes have real one-on-one -on -one time. Mm -hmm. So just pray that they can live in peace and harmony and they realize that that's coming from the Lord. And here's a praise. It's not just us doing the work. We have other brothers and sisters throughout the city mm -hmm. who choose to go to Rivard as well and bring the gospel. And so how encouraging that is that we're involved in that work and then our brothers and sisters in the city also see value and visiting, visiting those, as Christ called us to, visit me in prison. Mm -hmm. We want to pray for Rivard, and that's an, an, an invitation to you. I, I promise you, when I went the, the time that I've been in Rivard and sat down, I saw the hunger um, in the young men that were at our table, um, each one with a Bible in front of them, and, and just 
the, the dignity with which we do this ministry uh, of speaking to them, of, of expressing value, um, of, of teaching them, and then of sharing true hope with them. Um, we don't know how the story ends for each one of these kids, but we know how Jesus changes the life. Um, and so we are going with the true message of, of life change, of transformation um, into these places. So let's pray for Rivard. Thank you, Mark. Um, and, and I want you to, to see that even though you may not see a baptism on a Sunday, that doesn't mean that the kingdom hasn't been advancing this week. Um, it, you know, the, the church has been at work. The church has been being the church this week, and the kingdom has advanced. So let's give praise to God together. God, we thank you so much for Rivard. Um, Father, all the workers that are there, um, the social workers, the, um, the corrections officers, just everyone that, that, that has that responsibility, the weight of it. God, would you give them grace in the work? And may that place be a place of life um, where every, every one of these children is treated with dignity. Um, even in moments, Father, where they are not um, thinking rationally, Lord, may, may these workers be equipped with skills to help to de-escalate and to still with value and love um, respond to these children. Um, Father, thank you for the open door you've given us. Um, thank you for Kathy Ratke and just the ministry of her father before her and now her um, in Jefferson Parish. God, thank you for the open door. And Lord, we pray for more harvest workers um, for this harvest field. God, please, would you raise up more people to go? Um, we are so grateful, Father, for your work of salvation this week. Thank you for allowing us to be on the front lines of what you're doing in our city. And Father, we pray that you would continue to send us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Um, anytime that you're wanting to, uh, whenever we highlight all these ministries, um, especially on a Sunday like Sanctity of Life, um, it is meant to give you an on-ramp. Um, a way to get involved. If you're, you've been wondering, like, you know, uh, what can I, I want to get more involved into a ministry in the city. Each one of these, uh, Center for Life, Crossroads NOLA, um, Rivard, um, these are ministries that we have in the church. And so a way that you can communicate every week, you know, so like maybe you're not ready this week, but any week, you can take this serve card that's in the seat back in front of you. You can pull it out, you put your name on the top, and then most of these ministries would be considered um, local missions um, is, the, is the, the phrasing that we use right here. And that just is to have clarity for you that it's getting involved locally in doing this. So you can check that box. We will be in touch with you this week to help find out what you're interested in and then help you connect those dots so that you're not just trying to find your way on your own. And so just wanted to draw your attention to that. Well, this morning we're gonna continue in worship um, by, by looking at God's word. So I wanna invite you to turn in your Bible to Philippians, Philippians chapter three. And we've been walking through the book of Philippians together as a church over the last several weeks. And this week we come to chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And um, this passage opens up with Paul um, calling us to rejoice, um, calling us to rejoice. Now, this isn't like um, a parent at Christmas um, who the kid opens the gift and it's not the gift they wanted. And he's like, and the parent's like, you better be happy. You know, like, this isn't that, okay? So that's important for us to know that Paul is not like, you know, you better rejoice. You know, like, even though life is hard and all that, I don't want to hear one bit of complaining out of you. That doesn't seem to be the tenor of what he's doing. All that we've seen in chapter 1 and chapter 2, his approach with them is very much as, as a deep, 
is a deep brotherly bond with them, a, a true family relationship. So when you hear that word, that call to rejoice, know that he, he is aware that he's writing to people that have great difficulty and he's concerned for them. In fact, he's concerned that they maybe are even buying into some stuff that's gonna pull them away from Jesus rather than toward him. So he's got concerns, but, but this call to rejoice is a call that we need to rekindle. But, but Paul gives us the very bit of, of fuel that we need for that fire of rejoicing to, to burn here in this passage. And so I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We stand in honor of God for it is him that speaks. And so hear God speak to you today as his people from Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that's in the law, blameless. But everything that was a gain to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead." Father, I pray this morning that your word would pierce our hearts, that it would, it would give us the true fuel that we need to be able to rejoice this week that we belong to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, what I want us to see and to be reminded of is this, is that he's calling us to rejoice in the Lord, which is another way of saying, give thanks for the gospel. Um, we, we know that when he says Lord here, he's not just talking about God in a generic sense, but when he moves over later in this chapter in verse 8, he says of that of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's speaking in specific terms of a knowledge of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is only available to you and to me through the gospel. It's only through the gospel that we have this understanding of a triune God, one God, who is eternally three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what distinguishes us from those that he speaks of here in this passage that would have been Jews or identified themselves as Jews um, is, uh, uh, or those that were Judaizers, Gentiles that have become Jewish in their faith. Um, this is what distinguishes them is the gospel. And, and what is happening here in this context is there are those that are coming in to the body of Christ, those that he's brought the gospel to, and they are saying, you must also, you must also, you must also. And in fact, we know that even today for there to be, uh, you know, an, an ultra-Orthodox Jew, there's 613 rules that they have to keep up with. 
And, and so that's what's meant here. This is what's happening in this Christian community is they're coming in and they're adding additional rules like circumcision. Um, I know that in our day, we don't really talk much about circumcision. Uh, it's not something that we use to identify ourselves. I mean, I don't have a job here at First Baptist. Is if when I come and view of a call, I'm like, hey, Chad Gilbert, born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, circumcised on the second day. I'm unemployed. Uh, you know, like it's just a reality. We don't really, gr- we don't introduce ourselves that way. But we actually see circumcision as a major part of the biblical narrative. It's in the Old Testament throughout. It's a sign of the covenant the, of who belongs to the people of God. Um, it's a way that, that, that some, some unfortunate things are done um, throughout the Bible. There's kind of almost this trickery to, to be able to slaughter whole people as, as they get their men to be circumcised. And then when you turn over to the New Testament, it doesn't stop. We, we see that Jesus, his date of circumcision is a big deal. He's circumcised on the eighth day and it's recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And then we turn over here and Paul is again identifying himself as being circumcised on the eighth day. What gives? But what has changed in the last 2,000 years on what we're talking about here? And that's what we need to ask the question of. Rather than just being like, well, this is kind of weird. Let me find something that feels a little better than this. Um, it's important for us to understand why it is that Paul is saying we are the circumcised. And who's that we that he's speaking of? He is speaking of a group of people. It's getting darker in here, I think. Um, uh, he is speaking of a group of people that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, he's going to give us three markers in this passage that I want us to see. But as he is calling the church to rejoice in the Lord, and he's calling them to give thanks for the gospel, he knows that we need it for two reasons that we see in verse one. He says, first of all, it's no problem to write to you again about this. Uh, The reason he knows that is we need the constant reminder of the gospel. You and I, listen, we never graduate from the gospel. We never graduate. The the gospel isn't the doors by which we enter into the family of God. It's the whole house. It's how we relate to the Father constantly. It's how we relate to the Son constantly. It's how we understand the work of the Spirit is the gospel. The gospel becomes the lens by which I see every relationship. It's how I see my day all 24 hours. Everything is transformed by the gospel. Even the way way that I read the Bible is informed by the gospel. I look at the gospel as fulfillment of those promises in the Old Testament. I read the Bible differently because of the gospel. So we need to remember that, that every week on a regular basis, we need reminders of the gospel because it is the gospel that is the hope of God for all who believe. So we never graduate from the gospel. And Paul knows this. That's why he says, it's no trouble for me to write to you about this again to call you to rejoice in the gospel yet again. And then he says this, and it's a safeguard for you. You want to stay away from false teaching? You want to be able to avoid being duped and taken advantage of by, by every wind of teaching that comes along and every podcast speaker and every latest book and all those kind of things? Then return to the gospel again and again and again. Ponder the gospel again and again and again. That's what Paul's getting at. It's a safeguard for you when you let your mind be just saturated in the truth of the gospel. And so that's exactly what he does right here. He gives them, he says, this is the ground for your rejoicing is the gospel, that you need the reminder of the gospel, and it protects you. And so here's what it says. The gospel says this, we are his. If there's one truth that you walk away with today, I want every person in this room that is in Christ to leave knowing this, that the gospel says we are his. We belong to him. We are his. And that is significant beyond your wildest dreams, that we're his. 
we belong to him because that's a status that we did not deserve. It's a status that really, in the people in the first century of the sanctity, the same thing, it's too easy that all of a sudden you're his, you're his possession, you're his, his people. No, 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 no. You have to do all the rules. You have to, to do all of the things that we Jews do. That's what's at, 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 at play right here is they're coming in and they're saying, no, 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 it's not just faith. Paul is saying it is absolutely just faith. That's how we receive righteousness is believing God. And so what we're going to do in these moments together is walk through this passage and to see again, like we looked at last week, proof, proof that we are his, proof that we are his. Because the gospel says we are his. He says it right here for we in verse three are the circumcision. Notice he doesn't say we are circumcised because that may or may not be true in this room. That has nothing to do with the, the out outward form. He, he drives this home in other places. He is identifying as a people. He's saying as a group, we are the circumcision. And, and, and another way of saying that is we are his. I don't want us as First Baptists going into New Orleans and saying we are the circumcision. We will be misunderstood, okay? So like just know that we're not ashamed of the word, but things have been lost in translation, okay? We already, we already acknowledge that, but we can say, and it means the same thing, we are his, we are his. We belong to God. And that is true for every one of us. And so proof that we are his, Paul puts right here forward in verse, beginning in verse 3, is number one. It, or actually, let me walk through it because we're going to go in reverse order. Because I feel like in some ways the rest of the pack, passage unpacks verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. He says, this is the proof that we're really his. And he contrasts this to watch out for the dogs. Now, it looks like Paul's gotten into a little bit of like Twitter, you know, like, you know, activity, you know, like calling names and stuff like that. Again, things lost in translation. This was a common way of speaking about Gentiles. Now, commentators say it wasn't as um, derogatory as it sounds. I, I don't know, you know, like, I mean, I guess you'd have to be alive in the first century to know, but there's even a moment where Jesus is interacting with a Gentile woman that's recorded the passage, and it talks about, you know, you know, should we give the bread, the, 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 the bread to the dogs, you know, and it's this, it's this interesting passage, or, or, or should, should, you know, the, the bread be taken from the children, and she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs, um, and, and he actually sees that as an act of faith. And so she uses the term of herself. And so maybe, maybe there is something at play here. But what he's communicating, and don't miss the significance here, he is calling these Jewish people that are coming in and saying, you also have to be circumcised. You also have to observe dietary things. You have to observe festivals and moons and other things like that. He, he's saying, these are the dogs. I mean, notice the contrast there. They would say, no, 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 y'all are the dogs. And we're not talking about Georgia here, okay? I mean, like, y'all are the dogs. And, and, and Paul says here, this great reversal, those are the dogs. This changes everything, brothers and sisters. You need to let this sink in. This speaks even into sometimes the way we talk about eschatology and the idea of there being two groups of people, God's chosen people, Israel, and then the church or whatever. This is a, a passage we have to let speak into those sort of thinkings. That's not me saying that I've got it all figured out. My eschatology is perfect. I could write a book. But it is me to say that we need to allow these clear teachings to help explain some of the more difficult teachings. 
And Paul right here is, is not mincing any words. He says, watch out for the dogs. And we know that he's talking about the, the Jews that are coming out because he says, watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's calling what they do with human hands of circumcision, mutilating the flesh rather than circumcision, which would have been held in high regard of every Jew. So there's a big contrast going on right here. And so as he goes in and he says, but here's the proof that you and I belong to him. I'm going to start with the last one. We do not put confidence in the flesh. Look at the end of verse 3. That's how we know that we are his. We do not put confidence in the flesh. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to put confidence in the flesh? Well, Paul unpacks it for us. He, he actually gives us kind of the, the, uh, a walk through the hall of fame of the flesh that was Paul's. He says, if anybody wants reason to, to brag about something in the flesh, I've got more trophies than you. And then he goes through. So let's just walk through it and see how these relate to us today. He starts walking through. In verse 5, he says, you know, if anybody has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Well, a baby can't make that decision for themselves. So that's the parent's faith. And brothers and sisters, that's still a risk for you and I today. Is to think that we're okay, that, that our faith, our faith is good because our parents' faith was good. It's real common in New Orleans to, to kind of bank your status with God as, as being the status of your grandmother. You know, my grandmother prays for me. And so we kind of latch on to this idea. But Paul's saying, that's not enough. That's not where my faith is anymore, is in my parents' faith. We can learn from our parents. We can honor our parents. In fact, we're called to. But our parents' faith is not enough for us to stand right before God. Nationalism. Paul says, of the nation of Israel, nationalism, just because of the country you were born in. Listen, brothers and sisters, we Americans aren't the only nation that has pride in being who we are and our nationality. I love when we get to watch the Olympics and the World Cup because it reminds us that we're not the only people that are really proud to be and fill in the blank, to be a Brazilian, to be an American, to be a Honduran, to be an Indian. I mean, like, it, it, every one of these nations has pride, and so did Paul, born of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. But he says that kind of bragging, that's of the flesh. That's a check for us today, is that we're not allowing our identity as, well, Americans are Christian. No. No, not every American is a Christian. There's no nation that is all Christian Praise be to God, one day there will be Christians in every nation, tribe, and tongue. And to that end, we labor. But Paul says, I dismiss that. My parents' faith, nationalism, tribalism of the tribe of Benjamin. He begins to identify. And listen, that's what we do, right? Is that we, we begin to say, well, you know, down in the south or, you know, you know, in this specific pocket. And we begin to form tribes and groups that are, well, we're the, we're the real ones. You know, I've seen this, even as we talk about Sanctity of Life Sunday, there's been this kind of a, a, a tension that's gone on um, since the reversal of Roe versus Wade, which we celebrate, it, that there's this, been this tension that there are those that are saying, well, you know, even those that have been pro-life really aren't pro-life. You have to take it to this far extreme to be really pro-life. And what is that? That's a form of tribalism. And so Paul, in his own day, the 12 tribes of Israel, there was an ethnic identity or kind of like this tribalism that existed. But he says, I even put that aside. And Benjamin being one of the more revered tribes. 
small but mighty. He says, I set that aside. A Hebrew of Hebrews, his ethnicity, acknowledging that I'm a, I'm a purebred. He's saying both my parents are, are Hebrews, a Hebrew of Hebrew, born of Hebrews. Regarding the law of Pharisee, religious conservatism. And so like when we talk about conservative politics and we talk about conservative morals and conservative ideology and all that kind of stuff, the Pharisees were your conservative group. The Sadducees were more of your progressive or liberal group um, during Paul's day. But he says, I set that aside. That, that's not my primary identity. Uh, even though the Pharisees were rightly looking for the Messiah, they were rightly anticipating the resurrection of the dead. He says, I set all of those identities aside. And then he keeps going regarding zeal persecuting the church, his convictions. His convictions were so deep that he was giving his time and his effort to persecuting the church. And then his moralism, he says, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Blameless. His morals were perfect. There was, there, was no, there was no lack of integrity in this man. So let's just review that list again. His faith was not in his parents' faith. His, par- his faith was not in his nationalism. His faith was not in his tribalism. His faith was not in his ethnicity. His faith was not in his religious, religious conservatism. His, his faith was not in convictions. His faith was not in his morals. That's how he knew that he was in Christ. And that's what he's saying to them is that we put no confidence in the flesh. That's the proof that we're in Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's a check, right? Maybe there was one of those that, that that's become kind of your identity that you are a righteous person and that you're right with God. Maybe you've slid back into it. You are in Christ, but you kind of bought into maybe a different ideology and a different identity that's become primary to who you are. Notice Paul doesn't say, I wasn't born. I don't have a family. He doesn't begin to kind of make a Melchizedek kind of argument for himself. No, no, he still is these things, but those things are considered a loss in, in, in comparison to the gain of being in Christ. His identity in Christ has now become primary among all of the identities that he wears in this life. That's a check for you and me today that has something else become the main identity that I wear. I'm a something Christian. Christian is the modifier of our life. We follow Christ. We do not put confidence in the flesh, Paul says, and he outlays what the flesh is, inviting them to remember to never put confidence in the flesh. But then he says, we are his, proof that we are his is that we boast in Christ Jesus. Look at at verses eight through nine. Paul writes, more than that, more than that, I can also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. What this means is that our greatest joy now is in knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Uh, he, he's, he's pivoting. He's saying, I used to have joy in all of these other identity markers, but now the great joy in my life is knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Now, now, what that doesn't mean is that he just prayed the prayer when he was younger that, that asking Jesus to be his Savior and Lord. He's not just stopping there. He's saying, no, the great joy of my life is knowing Jesus Christ as Lord over every part of my life. 
that, that my relationships are now characterized by belonging to the Lord. That, that the way I see God and know him is now through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Uh, everything about his life has now been changed by Jesus Christ as Lord. And again, that invites the question for you and I, where are our lives in relationship to that sort of joy? Does knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and his lordship being manifest in every part of our life, is that joy or is that something that we hate? Is it something that we're like, oh man, I hope, I just hope the pastor doesn't bring up this area. Is this an area, man, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want, I don't want that being messed with. We have to be mindful of that. We have to look and to say, we welcome the lordship of Jesus in every part of our life. 8B, our identity is in him. Our, the, this means that our greatest joy is in our identity in him. He goes on, he says, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus Lord, because of him I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Notice that Paul doesn't say, well, I'll, I'll try to put a check on that, all of those aspects of the flesh. No, what Paul says, I consider all of those amazing identities, all of that status, all the things I could brag about, I consider them as worthless as a pile of you-know-what. That's what he says. He say, man, like that's really, really minimizing those things. That's right. It's really minimizing those things because it's through the active work of minimizing those things and losing those things and separating yourselves from those things that then you begin to exalt Christ in your life. So many times we want to hold those things close and Jesus. And that's not how it works. You want to know why you're not really growing in the faith? It may be that you're holding on to some things too much. Some other identities, some things of the flesh that need to be let go. You need to consider them, as Paul says, as dung. That you might know Christ. And then finally, this means our greatest joy is in believing God for righteousness, not working for it. Notice that he says this in verse 9, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that's through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Faith is believing God. Peter exercised faith when he was on the waters of the Sea of Galilee and he saw Jesus walking toward him. And then he asked Jesus, Jesus, Call me to come to you. And Jesus said, come. It was an imperative. Jesus had commanded. It only made sense. Sometimes we talk about Peter being a risk taker, and he just believed that he could walk on water like Jesus could walk on water, so he went out there. No, that scene only makes sense because Jesus said, come. It makes no sense for him to get out of a boat and expect to walk on water if Jesus isn't calling him to do so. Faith is not just you and me shooting, you know, shooting the moon on our dreams of, you know, what, what's the biggest I can envision and do it for God. I mean, Peter didn't just say, you know, I bet I could run a marathon for God on the water right now. And so I'm going to do it in faith. No, he said, Jesus, if it's you, tell me, command me to come to you. And then Jesus said, come, an imperative. So then there was only one thing for Peter to do in faith. And that was to come. That was to get out of the boat and to walk on the water toward Jesus. Brothers and sisters, faith is believing. It's believing what God has said. It is believing what Jesus has said. It is obeying what Jesus has said. And Jesus 
is calling you and me to believe, to believe him, that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is calling you and I to believe, to obey, that there is nothing that you and I can do to gain righteousness, to be right with God, to deal with our own sin. We can't do that. Only he can. And only he has. And it is only through believing, through faith in what God has done and what he has commanded for all men to obey, for all men to surrender to. It's only through that that we are made right with God and have a righteousness that comes not from ourselves, but is given or imputed to us, is given to us, is credited to our account. We owed, he paid the debt, and then gave us all the, the resources of Christ to where we have all that is needed to live a godly life. All of this is found in Christ. So the proof that we are his is that we do not put confidence in the flesh. The proof that we are his is we boast in Christ Jesus. Our joy is found in him and knowing him, our identity in him, and believing him for our righteousness and not working for it. But then finally, we show, we prove that we are his. Like he said in verse three, because we are the ones that worship by the Spirit of God. We worship by the Spirit of God. Verses 10 and 11, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Notice that his hope hasn't changed from his days as a Pharisee. He still believes that the resurrection is the hope. Brothers and sisters, you and I have lost that hope. So many times when we speak about hope, we just speak about hope as something that we get to through death. That, that I, you know, I look forward to dying so that then I can just be with God in heaven. But that is not how the, Bib the Bible paints a picture of hope. The, the, the picture of hope, I mean, like, just think about it for a second. Did the disciples... Did the disciples encourage each other after Jesus was placed in the tomb with, well, at least he's in heaven. He's in a better place. No, there was no hope. There was no rejoicing until Jesus rose. And brothers and sisters, that's our hope is that the dead in Christ will rise. So every time we face a death, it's a tragedy. We grieve. But Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And our hope is not just that we go to heaven. You're saying, Chad, you're saying we don't go to heaven? No, no, no. Uh, there's so many passages that give clarity to this, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul says in Philippians, I, I desire to depart and to be with the Lord, which is better by far, but it's for your sake that I think I should remain. And, and convinced of so, I think I will. You know, that kind of thing. So he's kind of going through and he's communicating this, that to be absent is to be present with the Lord. But we have got to rekindle that our hope is in his resurrection. Otherwise, we won't say with John, come, Lord Jesus, come. We'll just continue to say, I'm coming. I can't wait to leave. I'm coming, Lord. Leave all this garbage behind. Now we're longing to see his coming, and we live for his coming, and we live for his advance right now. We worship by the Spirit of God. This means that we are spirit-dependent. This means that we are spirit dependent. Don't miss that. We are dependent on the spirit of God to do something that we can't do. What are those things? We're dependent on the spirit of God to know Christ. If there's any hope for you and I to know Christ and to know him more, it will only be because of the spirit of God. 
So when you and I crack open our Bibles tonight, I'm going to be spending time with our youth. I'm so thankful for the real practical sessions we're going to be doing with our student ministry of training them. We're going to be talking about how to have a quiet time. Every time I open the Word of God, and I'm encouraging you, just be a reader of the Bible. When I open it, on the best days, I acknowledge first that apart from your spirit, I will not understand a thing that I read. Apart from your spirit, God, I will not act on anything you obey. I mean, anything you command. God, apart from your spirit, it's like I have scales on my eyes even as I feast on your word. So please, please, will you speak now by your spirit? We are spirit dependent to know Christ. We are spirit dependent to become like Christ. He says, you know, my my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. But then he says, being conformed to his death. We talk about being conformed to his likeness, but part of his likeness is dying. Dying to self, experiencing difficulty and persecution. I mean, part of his likeness is also the tragedies that he went through in this life, including death itself. And Paul knows that he's facing this. He knows the road he's on. This letter being written probably closer to the end of his life than toward the beginning of his ministry. And so he knows he's being conformed to the likeness of his death. So if I'm going to become like Christ, it's got to be the work of God's Spirit. And it's going to be the work of God's Spirit that we hold on to hope, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Hope. Hope. Everyone needs hope. You and I need hope. I don't know what you're facing right now. But I promise you that the hope of the resurrection of the dead is an ultimate hope that gives orientation through everything you will go through in this life. Hope that one day you will stand before God and you will be counted righteous. Not because of anything you did in this life. Not because of the accomplishments that you had or the failures that were few maybe. No, you will be counted righteous because of one who died for you. And his blood covered over all of your sin, paid in full. You have hope that today his Holy Spirit is at work in you. And he won't quit. He is going to persevere in his work in you. Because he who started a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. You have hope. You need hope. But I realize that anytime we gather, there are people in this room who realize they are hopeless. And what you need more than anything else is to pray the sinner's prayer. You say, Chad, I thought you said, you know, like it's not about that. No, it's absolutely about that. You see, this sinner continues to pray, God, I need your salvation. Please, God, save me from my own selfish inclinations. God, please lead me in the path of righteousness for your namesake. But there was a point in my life when I was 16 when I realized I was outside of the family of God. I was religious. I had reasons. I was, you know, a Southern Baptist, born of Southern Baptists. I had all those things, but I didn't have Christ. And it was in that moment of just getting real before God and just getting alone with God and then just getting 
down below God and admitting his lordship and confessing my sin before him and just praying a prayer like this, God, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that you gave Jesus to die on the cross for my sins and so I'm asking you today, please forgive me of my sins. Take away my sins and give me new life, Lord, please. I want Jesus to be the king of my life from this point forward. Thank you for giving Christ for me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And what I did in that moment was not say the right words. I believed the right Lord. I I believe that the the one that God gave to die for me, died for me. I I believe that the one who alone can take away your sin and mine, took them away. I believed, I had faith. And in that moment, I was given a right standing with God I didn't have before. In my life now, before you, is a life that's changed by the power and grace of God. That's your testimony, but there's someone here today, that's not your story yet. And what you need to do is just get alone and get real with God. Surrender your life to him. Maybe that's this morning. Maybe you just need to come and kneel at these steps before God and just pray and say, God, I give you my life today. Remember, we don't graduate from the gospel, so every person in this room can pray the same prayer. Every person in this room can humble themselves again. And every person in this room can rejoice. Father, we thank you for your word and how it leads us back to the gospel again and again and again. As we go through this life, Lord, sometimes we begin to get puffed up. We begin to to build a reputation, to garner respect from peers, all those things. And and in some ways we can just begin to act like it's by our own righteousness that we are right. Lord, forgive us when we become prideful. And please, Lord, through the power of your gospel, you humble us again so that like Paul, we can say that, that it's worth nothing in comparison to knowing Christ. But Lord, for the one who's here today, who has never given their life to Christ, who right now is hopeless, will you give them eternal hope through the gospel, through faith in Jesus, that they might become yours. I'm gonna invite for everyone to stand. We're gonna respond in song. If you need to just come and spend time kneeling at the front and praying, I invite you to do that in this moment because there's something powerful about when we surrender and when we humble ourselves. So let's respond in song in these last few moments of the service.